Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder and also an investor. You know, we're going to be able to really, you know, learn from both sides of the table because, I mean, on the investment side, he's done it for a long time. And and then on the, on the founder side, you know, incredible his response to COVID and the business that he's been able to build as a result of it. So again, building, scaling, financing, all that good stuff that we like to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Ben Boyer. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. I'm uh, excited to be here. So you grew up on the West Coast. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, it was great. Uh, so I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, my uh, mom and dad still live in the house that I grew up in. So it's always uh, like memory lane when I go back there and visit. Um, I was there through high school. Um, I went back east uh, to Vanderbilt uh, for, for college. Um, and it was during college. Um, I had uh, an internship um, at Merrill Lynch that um, I was first uh, introduced to finance and realized that I was uh, interested in that um, professionally. And uh, during my senior year, I applied for investment banking jobs, and uh, I got offers for investment banks in, in New York, um, but I was really focused on getting back to Los Angeles. Um, while I really enjoyed Nashville, um, I, uh, I, missed, uh, I missed L.A., and uh, Lehman Brothers had a, a tech practice that was, was um, uh, in Los Angeles, and so I was able to 
Um, uh, I was lucky enough to get a job with them and able to work out of that office. And so after graduation, I moved back to Los Angeles and um, I did uh, tech investment banking for, for a couple of years, which was, which was great. And what, what caught your attention from that? And, and what were some of the things that you were doing, you know, during your days in investment banking? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, the traditional financial analyst program, um, which which is actually, I think, more valuable uh, uh, for someone like myself than, um, you know, a kid that had studied finance. My undergraduate degree was human and organizational development, which is um, pretty much akin to uh, social psychology. Um, so I didn't come into it with, um, you know, a bunch of accounting and finance. Um, and Vanderbilt didn't offer a, a business major when I was there. They might have changed it. Um, and, and candidly, I'm not sure I would have signed up for it, um, uh, at, at, at least early on in college, because I truly didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I was attracted to the human organizational development major because it was so broad. And kids went into lots of different programs. Some went into business. And, uh, and that really uh, was attractive to me because, I, again, I didn't go to college knowing what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, but as I said, I had this great internship. And if you think back, it was the late 90s. It was, um, you know, a time where the stock market was booming. Um, that was, uh, you know, around the, the, doc, the initial dot-com uh, um, sort of uh, excitement, and which ultimately led to a bubble. But, um, but there was just a ton of enthusiasm for technology and for initial public offerings. And, and I think that was what drew me into it, um, you know, because... I was going to a large investment bank. They offered um, a very established training program. So I, as I was saying, I, I didn't come into it with, with a finance background, um, but, but having spent a summer in New York um, where you're doing coursework and, and learning from um, MBA you know, teachers uh, from Columbia, NYU, and, and other local schools, um, you really get up to speed quickly. Um, and once I, I started, um, I did enjoy it. Um, at least initially, um, uh, simply because I learned so much. The reality was it, it was very repetitive. Um, I think by you know the middle of, of my, uh, my my time there, so my the end of my first year, I realized I wanted to do something else. Um, uh, and uh, and while I was appreciative of the finance skills and I became really good at Excel, um, I, I definitely wanted to apply it in a in a different manner. So so in your case, while while you were at Lehman. You know, it sounds like there was an opportunity there that came up on the venture capital um, initiative that they had going on, and you ended up landing there. I mean, how do you how did that shift happen, and, and what caught your attention? I mean, because it's even though it's a smooth transition because it's still finance, and perhaps you know you were seeing some of it indirectly. I mean, it's quite a shift. Sure. Yeah. So um, while I, I was an analyst uh, doing investment banking, um, Lehman raised their first venture capital fund with outside limited partners. Um, and that was in 1999. Um, before 1999, Lehman actually did have a, an active venture capital business. It was quite successful, but it was a balance sheet effort. It was just using the, the, the firm's capital to make venture investments. Um, but based on the success of those initial investments, um, the strategy was sort of pulled together that was sold to outside limited partners. And um, at, after they raised um, that initial um, outside fund, they looked to staff it up with people. Um, and fortunately for me, they were looking for um, someone my level was uh, sort of a, an associate. Uh, as I finished my second year, I, I had applied into it. I was accepted. Um, I moved from Los Angeles to the Bay Area and, um, and began, you know, working as an associate um, in a venture capital firm. 
um, you know, that period of time was very similar to the beginning of my time in investment banking insofar as I came in with a very strong understanding of finance um, and really how the public markets perceive businesses. Um, I had also worked on a lot of M&A transactions um, when I was doing investment banking. So I, I think I had a pretty good sense for um, how acquirers think about business and, and from a diligence perspective, what that means. Um, but making an investment, learning about a market, assessing a team, um, looking at competitive threats both today and in the future um, is really different from a lot of the initial investment banking work that I was expected to do. And so um, the beginning you know, time in, in venture capital was, was incredible. It was like drinking from a fire hose. Um, and that was also a, a time where there was just more enthusiasm than you could imagine for the internet business model. It was entirely new. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly why they, they gave me the job offer. I, I had good reviews as an investment um, banking analyst. I certainly worked hard, uh, but I was really fortunate. I, I ultimately think I, you know, there probably were, were a number of people in my year that had um, the ability to be successful in the role. And I was just fortunate to, to get the job um, uh, uh, on the venture side. That's amazing. Now, now, now I'd like to double click in just a few of those things that you mentioned, you know, which involves, you know, being on, 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 on that side of the table. But before doing that, there was obviously one thing very interesting that happened and that was Lehman goes under. So, uh, how were you guys able to, um, to come out of that, you know, alive and spin out, you know, this thing, I'm sure it was not easy to take it out of bankruptcy. Yeah, so that was a few years later. Um, so after I, I joined the venture team, that was uh, January of 2000. And um, uh, at that period of time, it was, you know, traditional associate type work um, where I was doing a lot of deal origination, uh, a lot of market mapping to try to find stuff, um, and then um, a lot of diligence and execution. And I realized uh, during that period of time that, that I, I truly loved um, what I was doing. It was the first time um, in my life professionally, I just felt like, wow, I just want to do more and more of this. Um, I, I recognized that the business school would be additive um, to my, my capabilities as an investor, particularly from a networking perspective. Um, and so I applied to, to business schools. I, went, I, I ended up getting into Stanford and I went there. And then uh, upon graduating, um, I went back to work for the, the venture team at Lehman. They had offered to pay for business school if I returned, and I could not um, turn such a generous offer down. Um, and very reasonably quickly, I think it was within um, two years, I was promoted to partner and, um, and you know, operated as a, a partner with, um, with four other individuals. And then um, that's when the uh, the Lehman bankruptcy came. Um, we were obviously surprised by it. Um, the venture effort at Lehman was part of the private equity um, uh, division at Lehman. Um, and Lehman managed, I believe, about $30 billion in private equity at the time of the bankruptcy against a whole bunch of different asset classes and strategies. So there was a real estate fund, leverage buyout, um, and, and credit. And then we were we were the venture team. Um, and, um, you know, when that happened, we were fortunate to be operating um, out of our uh, fifth generation fund, um, and we still had active investments in our fourth fund. And while Lehman was a limited partner in each of the funds, um, they weren't the only one. And so what ultimately happened with the, with the bankruptcy is we went out and marketed the Lehman um, uh, investment positions, the LP. Um, and uh, and found uh, groups, these secondary players that like to buy secondary interest in you know, limited partner interest, 
And ultimately, um, we did a deal with a group called Harborvest, um, and uh, they bought Lehman's LP interest. And so um, that all transpired just a couple months after the Lehman bankruptcy. And um, we, at that point, rebranded the firm Tenaya Capital. Um, but because Harborvest um, bought the LP interest and stepped into the unfunded commitment, all of our fund sizes remained the same. Um, the strategy remained the same. The team remained the same. So all we literally did was change our name. Um, and we've been operating um, as, uh, as Tanaya ever since then. Um, we raised a couple of additional funds after, uh, after the, the spin-out. And, um, and there's five of us uh, that continue to manage um, uh, the, the Tanaya um, uh, uh, portfolio. Um, it's the same um, five guys that, that, that worked together back in 2000. So we've worked together for um, 23 years. Uh, pretty amazing to have a partnership um, survive that, that length of time, survive a bankruptcy, um, and to continue to you know, post uh, very strong returns across multiple market cycles. But um, but ultimately, um, you know, that, that, that uh, experience was tremendous insofar as it really forced us to come to, together as a partnership in, 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 in a way that I don't think any of us had ever expected we'd have to, to, to you know, to be. Um, it really at that point became more a family than anything else. Um, because the, the period of spin-out, although it didn't take a long time, it was obviously a very stressful time. Um, my daughter was born. Uh, two weeks before the Lehman bankruptcy, uh, I'm sorry, two weeks after the Lehman bankruptcy. So um, it was, uh, I wasn't entirely sure, you know, if I even had health health coverage. Um, but but ultimately, once we understood, you know, if we put the limited partners first and try to maximize things for them, it would be in our best interest as well. And that's really been the ethos of tonight capital ever since then. Put the limited partners first, um, and put. And if you do that, good things happen for for everyone. And what what are the assets under management that you guys have today for the people that are listening? I mean, any 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 high level uh, overview that you can give us, you know, on the firm assets under management, types of investments, and then also number of investments. Yeah, um, and and I don't have exact numbers on the number of investments we've historically yeah. made, but we're today managing about a billion and a half dollars. Um, as I said, it's a small partnership; it's just five of us. Um, and uh, and yeah, we we've all all five of the partners have had. Um, you know, tremendous success. My my area of focus at Tanaya had really been around um, uh, mobile marketplaces, um, vertical applications. Um, I also did a fair amount of our international investing. Um, and while that was not, uh, you know, the core of the strategy, um, we have the ability to put up to 20% of every fund into international investments. And that tended to be businesses that I pursued. Um, and I, I, I ran a, a strategy in China um, early days, which was quite successful. And uh, today we have uh, one remaining Chinese uh, investment, a great business called Convenience B, and, uh, and also one uh, investment in, uh, in Indonesia. Um, but, uh, but, but ultimately, we've, we've all had a number of IPOs and, and successful outcomes. Now, let's double click on what you were alluding earlier on, on finding you know, teams. I mean, when it comes to to pattern recognition. You know, there's a lot of people that talk about pattern recognition. Talk to us about pattern recognition. What, what does that mean? And how do you guys think about that at the firm? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it, it really defines um, success or failure within venture capital. Um, I don't think uh, venture, venture capital is, is the hardest job um, out there. Um, having operated in a, in a startup, I, I definitely think it's harder to do that than be an investor. 
but it very much is an apprenticeship business. Um, and the reason for that is you have to start being able to discern patterns, um, both good and bad. Um, and when you see a bad pattern, it provides you with an opportunity to miss, miss an investment that was going to be a mistake or a problem. Um, and on the positive side, if you can see um, some of the patterns emerge for success, um, that also becomes something that you can pursue going forward. Um, all that said, you know, it, 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 venture capital is not a perfect science. Um, if it was, we could create an algorithm to, to, to invest in businesses. And while the, the, generative, you know, the generative AI stuff is really interesting, I think we're, we're long ways away from it replacing venture investors. Um, I think those tools can actually get helpful screening lots and lots of opportunities. But the reality is, um, you know, you go, no go decisions really um, are as much art as, as science and really understanding team and being able to see how people interact with you and interact with, um, with questions, particularly some that are hard. Because um, sometimes you learn a lot when you put someone in that position and ask them, you know, something challenging. Um, and, and the reason for that is, you know, at the end of the day, these are, are, are businesses that are operated by people. Um, and as long as people are involved, you know, you could have a great management team with the right pedigree and, and background. But if, if the founders aren't getting along and you typically only know that if you spend a lot of time with them individually together and then spoken to um, the e-staff. So you understand what the executives are saying about the interactions there. Um, you know, it, it, it takes that to really discern whether or not, you know, this is going to be a functioning um, team going forward. But that's just one example. So what are the uh, three things that you see perhaps repeat a lot on many of those companies that you guys have invested in that went on to do IPOs and, and did incredible stuff? Yeah, I mean, so uh, the part of this Part of this answer is going to be uh, uh, based on the stage of investing that Tanaya did. So um, Tanaya is an early growth stage investor. What that means is we're, we're typically leading second institutional rounds. Um, back when I started in venture capital, that was very clearly a Series B. Um, and you would typically see seed funding really not be uh, institutionalized. It's really friends and family. Um, and then the Series A was when the first institutions would get involved. And then when the product or service started to touch a customer in some capacity, um, even if it was very early revenue or no revenue, that's when uh, Tanaya would start looking at an investment. What we were trying to manage uh, was uh, tech risk. So we didn't want to take on any tech risk. Um, and back in you know, 2000, um, you know, there was tech risk when you would go after different hardware opportunities or sometimes semiconductors, if, if it was pre-tape out, things like that. Um, tech risk means less now as you're thinking about software, you're thinking about um, uh, mobile marketplaces and, and applications and things like that. There really is not a lot of tech risk, if any. Um, what it is is adoption risk. Um, and we're pretty good at, at, at sort of evaluating that. Um, some of the stuff that we, we, we focus on and care about is um, we care about who's around the business. Um, and, and what I mean by that is who, you know, what institutions have already got, gotten actively involved with the business? Um, you know, who are those people at firms? Um, it, 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 it really doesn't matter, at least to our stage of investing, to co-invest with groups where you know how they're going to react in not only good times, but bad times. Um, what we have found is, look, these things are fragile. Not all of them are going to work. Um, and there's going to be times where even the best companies are struggling. And 
the question of, of how an investor responds during that time is it, it, it incredibly important to um, our success criteria. And the reason for that is we've invested with um, in good, good markets, um, good, good products and good teams where the syndicate was weak, um, where you were dealing with groups where they weren't going to be able to raise additional capital, um, in which case maybe they never wanted to exit the business, even if it became very obvious we should exit the business. Or you had teams that were struggling to raise a new fund, and because of that, they were just looking to get liquidity, even if they were selling the business short. And so we had just constantly seen a suboptimal uh, series of outcomes where businesses hit the other criteria well. And so we moved away from making those investments. And I think that was a, a very important screen um, for our investment decision that, that ultimately led to um, strong uh, returns going forward. Um, the, 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 the founders' interpersonal relationship, um, as well as their, their background and experience, is also incredibly important to us. Um, you know, we've seen a number of situations where um, founder divorce um, leads to implosion of the business. And, and it really, the amount of destructive behavior that we've been witness to is incredibly um, uh, it, it's been significant and it's incredibly sad. Um, you know, these things are hard to build, even if everyone is getting along swimmingly. Um, but, you know, if you add in the complexity of, of internal strife um, and you start seeing the business sort of uh, devolve into fiefdoms, um, you know, you, you're not in any position to deal with turbulence as it, as it arrives. So spent a lot of time trying to understand uh, the founders, um, where their strengths lie, how well they have divided up responsibilities, roles and responsibilities um, to really um, accentuate the strengths and protect against weakness and de deficiencies. Um, and so that, that's another sort of learning. And it, it, took, it took a while uh, for us to get that. And I, I think got pretty good at that. All that said, um, like marriages, you know, you, you, they don't always work. And so you go into it with, with all the, 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 the belief that it will and, all, and for all the right reasons. Um, and, and sometimes they don't. And then trying to figure out how you work one or you know multiple out of the business is something that I think we're reasonably good at. Um, we're active investors, so we're typically taking board seats. Sometimes we take an observer seat, um, and so we try to be um, uh, you know helpful to the business in managing through good and bad. Um, and as I said, even our best companies will hit air pockets from time to time. Um, the third piece of this is really trying to figure out. Um, if it, revenue is not necessarily um, the North Star for investing, um, uh, for us, um, we're okay taking on, you know, sort of that, that revenue monetization risk if we can um, understand what the path looks like. But we, we really need to, to understand what the proxy is for demand, whether or not there really is a market for this. Because there's countless examples of companies that built amazing technologies that haven't been adopted or they were just too early. Um, I think that more times than not, the, the, the thesis was, was right. But if it's going to take an extra four or five years, you miss the market. You're not going to fund the business for four or five years where there really isn't any, any real pull for the, the product or service. And so trying to understand what, what metrics around engagement. We do a lot of our diligence through customers, and that doesn't need to be a paying customer, but it needs to be a, a beta, um, an alpha. It could be a you know software that was developed that a bunch of friends of the company are, are utilizing and really understand is the value proposition that the, the management team is articulating us actually being felt by these early adopters of the technology. 
Um, on the consumer side, it's a little bit easier because you, you, you basically get to throw these applications out into the ether and see how people engage with them. But on the enterprise side, and with, within Tanaya, about 70% of our investments was, was enterprise. Um, we, uh, we, we really do spend a lot of time with the customer. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Talk to us about April 2020, because it sounds like, you know, you were on this path on the investment side, and then all of a sudden things change, you know, where you are now blending both the founding side and the investment side. So what happened in, in 2020? Yeah, so you know, I, I, I peeled back a little bit earlier, and 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 you know, for for me, COVID hit um, in the beginning of 2020, and the reason for that is I had a very large investment in China, and so as the first wave um, of COVID uh, hit China, it was quite devastating. Um, I started to get alarmed that you know, at least what we had seen with other uh, uh, pathogens is. Um, you know, they don't really think about borders um, or there is no concept of, of, of protecting the border from a pathogen that as long as we have, you know, air travel and, and people, um, you know, it, 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 being around the world at any given time and then moving, you're going to have a spread. Um, and so watching um, the first wave hit China got me um, alarmed um, as we started to see cases in the U.S., um, that's when, you know, I started to have, a, I would dare to say, an emotional response to, to COVID um, that, you know, I had read in the past about the Spanish flu and other pandemics. And it felt like, wow, this is really happening, um, that I'm actually going to, you know, experience one of these in, in my lifetime. Um, my, some of my early investments, um, you know, are, are companies like Lyft and Eventbrite and Kayak and you know, as COVID, the initial COVID wave came to the U.S. and, and we started to shelter in place by the end of March, um, those businesses were just devastated. And the U.S. economy, if you look at it, was effectively turned off for, for a period of time. The whole global economy was as well. And um, that's when, you know, I, I really started to, to think a lot about the problem. Um, and, you know, I, I can't tell you 
what happened, I, I was sheltering in place. At that point, I was living in Los Gatos. So I was in the Bay Area um, in Santa Clara County, which was the first county that went shelter in place in the country. And um, and I just started thinking, you know, we're, we're, there's got to be some answer to this. Um, I don't know what it is. I'm not uh, an infectious disease expert, an epidemiologist. But, you know, the world has dealt with pathogens forever. We deal with them on a daily basis. Um, and, and there must be some organization out there that has some ability to provide guidance to get my daughter back into school, to get um, all of us to, to, to start reliving the life that we were before. And um, for whatever reason, I, I started to focus on hospitals. Um, and my father's a surgeon, so I suspect he deserves some of the credit, although I don't remember having a conversation with him about this. Um, but, you know, if you think about it, ever since the advent of the hospital, it's the one communal gathering place for the sick. And if generally speaking, you and I can go into a hospital and receive care, despite the fact within the four walls of the hospital, they have C. diff, pneumonia, MRSA, and now they have COVID, then maybe they know how to stop the spread of an infectious disease. And so I became a student in infection prevention in hospitals. I was reading um, as much as I could. And what I learned is it's pretty simple and it's very consistent. Um, the way hospitals think about infection risk is against three dimensions. Um, they think about hands. Um, that's why you have to scrub in and scrub out. Um, one of the things I learned in, in, in learning about infection prevention in hospitals was um, scrubbing in and scrubbing out was something that was born um, after the, the Spanish flu, that during that pandemic, um, a Red Cross nurse had recognized that there were worse outcomes with uh, frontline workers that didn't practice hand hygiene. Um, and specifically, they were looking at pregnant women that came into the hospital healthy that ended up getting uh, Spanish flu and many of them dying. And so this brilliant Red Cross nurse recognized this and, and that became you know, part of the protocol going forward, which is everyone has to scrub in and scrub out. Um, hospitals also think about risk associated with uh, air. And to mitigate that, they typically use filters and then surfaces. Um, and, and, and for that, they're typically using um, chemicals. I was expecting to find a bunch of technology in, in the hospital in, in, in terms of infection prevention, um, uh, and I didn't. Uh, but what limited technology I did find was UVC light. Um, I wish I could tell you I was an expert in it. I was not. I knew it was germicidal. That was the extent of my, my understanding. But what I learned was that the hospitals with the lowest incidence of what are called HAIs, or healthcare-acquired infections, which are, these are secondary infections you do get going to the hospital. So think about going uh, into a hospital to have a knee surgery. You, you, you could get a staph infection. Going in for an MRI, you could catch something called C. diff, which is a, a stomach ailment. The hospitals that have the lowest incidence of that use UVC light to disinfect um, spaces. Um, and I learned that UVC not only disinfects surfaces, but also air. Um, I also learned that it's perfectly safe um, and sustainable. Um, and that you could leave an apple out and run a disinfection and then eat it afterwards, and there'd be no impact. Whereas if you spray a chemical, um, you would have to destroy the food that's in, interacted with it, clean the plates and, and the like. And I just fell in love with this idea that the answer to COVID could be as simple as turning on a light. Um, I'm not an engineer uh, by training, and, and, and candidly, I, I was not looking at starting a company at this point. I think my interest was really around maybe there's an investment that Tanaya could make. Maybe there's a company out there um, that will build systems that will um, see increased demand as a result of, of the pandemic. 
And so I did a market mapping. I started to look at, at the various products in the space. Um, there's one venture-backed startup um, in this category. It's a company called Zenex. Um, they've been around for 15 or 16 years. And um, they had built a product um, that had a, a wonderful body of, of, of evidence that showed that it was effective at, at, at disinfecting hospitals and re reducing the incidence of HAIs. But they were charging $125,000 to $150,000 for the product. And it didn't make sense to me why that product was so expensive. Um, as I said, not an engineer, um, but I've worked with a bunch. And so I reached out to the former product uh, head of product engineering for one of my portfolio companies. His background is mechanical engineering. Um, he worked at Abbott. He also worked at a medical device startup. And so, you know, he's, he's lived his life in healthcare and, and hardware. And um, I said, look, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm sheltering in place. Um, you know, the, the world is falling apart, but I'm doing a bunch of research into UVC. Uh, I don't know if you have any interest in, in, in digging around the space with me, but uh, if you do, I've got a bunch of stuff I can send you. And he said, sure. And so I sent him um, a bunch of stuff, and you know, it was probably a week later he called me and he said, it's just a light with a timer. It shouldn't cost $125,000. And he had sketched out you know, effectively on a napkin what he thought this product should look like, what it should do. And he said, look, I think I can build something like this for a fifth or a sixth of the cost of the Xenix product, and I'll make it even more powerful. Um, he also wanted to embed an LTE chip in the device, uh, you know, to create an IoT-enabled product. And, you know, I didn't believe it. It sounded too good to be true. And so the investor in me said, we've got to do more diligence. Um, and so we found um, an individual um, who had ran Calosha for more than a decade, a, a very brilliant scientist, and Dr. Richard Wade. Um, and Dr. Wade has taught at Harvard and Oxford. And, and we had the opportunity to, to sort of pitch him on the idea. And his eyes got bright and he just said, I love UVC. It's been the gold standard for, you know, disinfection for decades. Um, and he said, uh, I think it's time is now. Um, it's really just been a technology that's lived in, in healthcare. Um, but given everyone is now dealing with um, these, these infections, I think, um, you know, there's going to be real uh, interest in it and bringing the technology outside of, of healthcare. He also called out the fact that um, in leading OSHA for California, he dealt with thousands upon thousands of exposure lawsuits from chemicals. Um, so chemicals are not good for people. They're not good for the environment. It's a petrochemical process. Uh, they're very carbon intensive to create them. It's even more carbon intensive to transport them. So think about a gallon of, of, of Clorox, you know, weighs seven, eight, nine pounds um, and moving those all, all throughout the country. And so, um, he, he just said they're really bad for the, for the country. They're, they're really bad for people. Um, to properly apply chemicals, you should actually have a mask on. Um, depending on the chemical type, and if you're using an electrostatic spray, you should potentially be in full PPE. And he said, you know, the beauty of UVC is you just put it in a room, shut the door, and let it do its thing, and, and you don't have to worry about anything. And, and uh, we said, well, that, that's great, Dr. Ray. We're glad you're excited about this. But what are we missing? Why is it that we're going to bring a product to market that's a fifth of the price of Xenex and it's going to be effectively a better product? It will disinfect the same size space faster. Um, and his comment was, you know, you're not missing anything. He said, you know, historically, these products have only been sold into healthcare. And he said that the pricing in this market is just an artifact of our screwed up healthcare market. And he said, it's the reason why you, if you go into the ER for an x-ray, it can cost, you know, $2,000, $3,000. Um, he said the pitch that the vendors in the space make to the healthcare systems is, look, if we save you three to four HAIs, it pays for the hardware. 
Um, ETIs in the U.S. on average, you know, can cost, you know, $30,000. And so that pitch uh, rings true, which is I'll pay this amount of money up front. I'll, if I mitigate a couple of HAIs, you know, every year, it will more than pay for, for the hardware, um, despite the fact these, these systems shouldn't cost that much. And um, he just said, look, if you guys can really build this, I think you're going to be disruptive in healthcare, but I also think you can bring the technology out. And so that was the moment we decided to, to launch the business. Um, and uh, we incorporated in April of 2020. Uh, we raised uh, a seed round very quickly. Um, it was an incredibly challenging time to build a company because that was shelter in place. I mean, I, we, I wasn't even sure it was legal for me to be going to an office, but I was meeting with my two co-founders. Um, uh, the mechanical engineer pulled in a, another co-founder that had experience in building hardware. And we were spending countless hours on this. Um, and it was a very trying time for me personally, uh, trying to manage two jobs. Um, I had a portfolio in many instances that was, was very impacted um, by, uh, by, by COVID and had to shut down services and, and the like. Um, and so I was working as many hours as I ever have in my life. Um, weekends were the same as weekdays. There was, you know, you're working until 11 or 12 uh, at night on, on weekends as well. Um, but we were, were, were really, we had, a, I, I would say, uh, an energy um, that was driven by this desire to be a part of this solution. Uh, we recruited a phenomenal team. Um, I think a lot of people just wanted to, to get involved like we did. Um, we raised money from incredible investors. Um, so we're backed by the earliest investors in, in Amazon, Tesla, SpaceX. Um, how, how much have you guys raised to date? Uh, we've raised uh, the exact number. I think is 170 million dollars. Um, 100 million came in uh, in uh, the middle of last year. Got it. So, so obviously, you know, incredible run, you know, with with a company, and in such a short period of time that you guys have been able to raise all that money too. I guess the um, the question that comes to mind is, if you were to go to sleep tonight and the vision of our zero was fully realized, what would that world look like? Yeah, um, what, stood, what started is this infection prevention technology to help respond to COVID um, has morphed over time to healthy buildings infrastructure. Um, we have this realization working on R0 that the world had just accepted that, you know, in the U.S., 40 million people get influenza every year. Uh, 20 million people get norovirus. RSV, you know, we, we kill old people and infants at a, a reasonably high rate. Um, that we would have, you know, healthcare costs plus uh, loss of productivity impacting the economy, you know, in, in the tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars on a yearly basis. And we realized you don't need to accept that. Um, you know, if you think back to, to when we were all sheltering in place, there was no influenza, there was no norovirus, there was no RSV. Um, and obviously you can't have a functioning economy where people don't interact, but what you can't do is create spaces that are um, safer. Um, and we focused on what science was out there to, to, to do that. Um, and so we started to build um, not just this first product, but a suite of different products that do different things that make it such that we can reduce the infection risk of any space. If you give us a room, we can make it such that it is less likely to be an area where people will get sick. And so that to me is the vision for our zero going forward, you know, and it is an incredibly exciting proposition that 
we can just help reduce sick days. And we can make it such that people are less likely to get sick in an R0 protected facility than one uh, which doesn't have our technologies. Um, and I think about influenza often. Um, one, we had a very bad influenza year last year, but influenza is often a top 10 leading killer in the U.S. We don't think about it like that um, simply because, you know, you and I get it. It's not going to kill us or, you know, it, it's going to make you feel bad for a week, maybe two weeks. But but ultimately, influenza does kill um, people over the age of 65, which is why it's so important for people to get the flu shot on a yearly basis in, in that population. Um, but the way it's typically spread is through schools. Um, so you have waves of influenza that go in and spread in, in this environment. Um, and those kids spend time with their parents and their grandparents, some of which, you know, are, have compromised immunity or just age. And those are the ones most at risk. And so if we can sell our systems into schools and slow the spread of these infectious diseases, we can save people, you know, my parents' age. Um, and that, that to me is... That's that's the real impact. That's the opportunity, you know, for this thing to really um, be able to change society. Um, and, and ultimately, that's that's the goal of the organization. And now, if you were to back in time, let's say you were reflecting here and and I was to put you into a time machine, you know, and I put you back to the time where you were still at Stanford and you're able to give yourself one piece of advice, you know, before launching a business. What would that be and why? Um, I would say uh, my my best advice, and I, I think I was lucky that I worked in venture capital before launching the business, was um, really to know your investors. Um, the relationship that you are forming with an investor that comes in and, and leads your Series A or Series B, and in our case, we've had three finance, three, um, three series, uh, sort of form, formal institutional rounds and one seed round. But... Um, I came into R0 knowing how important those relationships were going to be. It was going to be a long-term build with them. Um, and knowing how these investors are going to act in good and bad times um, was potentially going to define success for the business. Um, our, uh, our seed investor, um, a guy named Duncan Turner at SOSB, I, I credit him with, with truly helping us to deliver the first product. Um, SOSB is like the Y Combinator of hardware startups. They're incredible. If you're building a hardware company, um, you should start with a conversation with them. I, I don't think there's any group better um, out there um, than those guys. Um, and they provided us true engineering resources and, and people we could go to and ask questions when it was a team of three people trying to figure out how do we get this thing to market quickly. Um, our Series A investor uh, was Ira Aaronkreis from DBL Partners. Um, DBL stands for Double Bottom Line Investors. Um, these guys effectively created that 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 entire uh, genre of investing, if you will, um, where you're, you're 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 focused on not just profits but a second bottom line of doing good, making the world a better place. Um, his claim to fame is being you know one of the earliest investors um, in, in Tesla and SpaceX. Um, he's still on the Tesla board. Um, but the support um, that, that he and his partnership have provided to the business is, is immeasurable. Um, you know, I, I don't think there is an investor that works harder for his portfolio companies than, than Ira. Um, Rob Diaz um, at the World Innovation Lab um, has been an incredible partner to the company um, uh, as well. 
uh, and uh, and really, you know, the the relationship between investors is 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 almost as important as the relationship between the founders and or the CEO and and the investors. And and he and um, Ira work incredibly well together. Um, he's an incredible enterprise investor with a tremendous track record and, and experience. Um, and uh, and 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 you know, to have his insights around the business and be able to. Um, open up the doors that he's opened has been, you know, tremendous. And then our Series C was led by uh, Casey DePoe, um, an investor named Tom Birch. Um, and Tom uh, manages the entirety of the venture effort at, at, at the CDPQ, which is um, quite large. And he put on the board uh, um, uh, an individual from Ivanhoe, Cambridge. But, but between the two of them, they've been um, really great partners. But you know, the business is one that, that has effectively had two, two lives already. Um, even though, you know, we're, we're three and a half years old and we've been selling a product, our first product for only three years, um, or a little less than three years. Um, we had the COVID response period where we had, um, tremendous amount of demand. We weren't entirely sure who our customer was. We were selling this thing to enterprises, dozen professional sports teams, schools, correction facilities, you name it. We had a customer. Um, to the post-pandemic period where we actually have to understand who is our customer um, and, you know, where are we seeing repeatability and what are the additional problems we can help solve for them going forward. And that transition is not easy. Um, and um, the support that we got from um, our investors as we made that transition was incredible. Um, we brought on a world-class CEO, a woman by the name of Jennifer Knuckles, um, who's been leading the business since October and has done a phenomenal job. Um, our founding CEO did a good job of ideating the product, but he was a first-time CEO, never had enterprise experience. And, um, and it was time to bring on a seasoned veteran that is, you know, ha has, has built um, large organizations, and she's done that. Um, I knew her personally uh, before uh, starting the business, um, and it's been um, nothing short of a pleasure to have the opportunity to work even closer with her as, as the, the, the CEO of the business. Um, but, you know, this investor group um, has provided a tremendous amount of support for the company. Introductions, um, as I said, uh, they work tirelessly. Um, and Ira is the one that's been around it longest. Uh, him and, and Duncan, Duncan on the seat side, um, hasn't had a board seat. Ira has. Uh, and uh, and I, I just can't say enough positive things um, about uh, about him and, and, and the work that they've all done to help the business. I love it. So, uh, Ben, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, um, anyone that wants to ping me, uh, if it's regarding R0, um, I, I say ben at r0.com uh, is probably the, the best way. Um, ben at rzero.com. Um, otherwise, uh, if you uh, want to talk finance and investing, um, Ben at TaniaCapital.com. And Tanaya is T-E-N-A-Y-A and then Capital.com. But happy to connect uh, on either. Amazing. Well, Ben, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you, Alejandro. It's a real pleasure to have the opportunity to chat with you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, 
you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.